As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful, Herbal Face Food, for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me a very special colleague. Her name is Callie Scott. She is a yoga and dharmic traditions educator. 
who also happens to be a lifelong social justice and anti-racist activist. This is my mission for the rest of my life, to give voice to those who advocate for those without a voice. Callie, in your bio, you are Yoga Alliance certified. You've had a 500-hour yoga teacher training of Indian heritage, which I think is significant. And we'll get into it. You've ta- you're one of the founding members of the UK Yoga Teachers Union. You're also the founder of the Rebel Yoga Tribe YouTube channel, as well as the founder of the Radical Yogi Book Club. And you are committed to continuing delivering professional development trainings, which delve deep into the legacy of colonialism, cultural appropriation, intersectional oppression and racism in modern yoga. I'm not comfortable, but I know this is important. What I want to start with is this. How on earth did this become your main focus? We desperately need you, but I can't imagine how this path unfurled in front of you, and I'm so curious. Thank you, Lena. Thank you for welcoming me. And that um, that very long introduction. I think when somebody when somebody talks about the work that I do, I'm always surprised, and then wonder to myself, how do I manage to fit it all into my working day? Um, how did I arrive at this point? Well, I've been doing this work for many years now, um, but I think it's really useful if I go back into my family of origin story. My heritage is Punjabi Sikh. My parents are from the region of India, which was partitioned after British left India. And um, they experienced great hardship under colonialism. My parents were colonised when they were born. And they experienced great hardship, particularly following the partition. And when they left India to come to the UK on the British government's invitation, they thought they were coming to to return to this what had been represented as the motherland for India. That was part of the, the psychology and the dominant hegemony that the British represented to Indians in order to colonize and dominate. How did they get that word? How did they get that message across? Well, the education system, all of the governmental and political structures, military and forcible um, so, I mean, there was all sorts of horrendous things going on, just shootings, rape, land dispossession, separation of families, just a brutal history. Um, something, I mean, it's millions of people died in India during the British rule. The British ruled India for something like 400 years, um, starting off as a private corporation, and then the British government itself took ownership. And that period of time, the impact on the nomadic tribal peoples of India, the impact on uh, land relationship was devastated. People were dispossessed of their lands. The partition then further enforced that hardship and suffering. Something like three and a half million people lost their lives during partition in one very small part of India. And we're talking about what years? Sorry. This was in 1947. So this is in, my parents were young children when this happened, and they're obviously scarred by it, as are, wow. as, as I am, as my, my generation is. That kind of um, trauma sits within the body, that kind of trauma, although we may develop very adaptive strategies for coping with deeply embedded ancestral, intergenerational and lived reality trauma, it manifests itself in our daily lives. And so that was kind of the context in which I grew up and the home into which I was born. My parents were deeply traumatised. And when they arrived in the UK, there were race riots, white-bodied nationalists, extremists, through petrol bombs, the street, Marshall Street, which is very famous because Malcolm X visited Marshall Street in 1965 when my parents lived there. Mm. Um, to bring some 
sense of unity to the black and brown people on that street and some sense of comfort and reassurance. So I grew up in a very much an activist home. Right from the start, my parents were racially traumatised. They witnessed scenes of incredible violence in India and then scenes of violence upon the street in which they arrived in the UK. And my parents' dream for me was to grow up and become a lawyer. And I often wonder why they were so determined for me to go into law. It's because they had always felt that their rights were never protected and they wanted to have some stake in the society in which they were now living, a white dominant society, in which at Mm -hmm. any moment they could be deported. They never felt like they were secure citizens. Their citizenship was always in question. Their right to belong was always in question. How was that manifesting itself in their understanding? Was there some sort of communication that their citizenship was in question? Or was it just a known thing? It was. I mean, there were campaigns. There was a campaign, a lot of campaigns in the 1960s that we don't want. I mean, the language used was horrendous. But at that time, black and brown people were labelled as one homogenous group. And we don't want you as our neighbours. We don't want you living on our street. We don't want you taking our jobs. Even though the government had invited them, my parents were... My mum was particularly discriminated. She worked in an iron foundry, sustained an injury, and there was no support from her employer at all, simply because she was a brown woman who couldn't speak very much English and therefore she had no rights. My father... Mm. uh, I mean, they worked, they've worked to the bone, my parents, in order to develop some level of stability, psychological and economic stability. But even so, they knew that their children, in order to have a sense of belonging, would have to assimilate and become very English in their ways, uh, to be passive, to be submissive to not draw attention to ourselves, but to understand the mechanisms and the systems within which we operate so that we could begin to progress through those and give us opportunities, but also for those of our community members who didn't have opportunities. So I went to university. I worked damned hard to go to university, and then I became a civil rights lawyer, uh, and then I moved into criminal and family law. Wow. Um, And I did that for a significant part of my younger day until I got burnt out because it was hard. It was hard seeing a disproportionate number of black and brown men being stopped and searched and arrested and imprisoned. And it just, it was emotionally exhausting. There's only so much resilience and tolerance we can have not only experiencing racism, but also bearing witness to racism that others experience. And that secondary exposure to racism, and also walking into a police station as a brown, petite woman and into prisons, I wasn't treated with respect. I wasn't treated as if I was a professional colleague. So misogyny mixed up with racism was my daily bread and butter while I was in legal field. And to recap, so far, let's just hearken back to your parents watching and experiencing violence, both there in India and here in the UK, and then giving rise to you, followed all the rules, did all the work, did all your homework, worked damned hard to get where you were, only to continue to have the experience again and again on a daily basis, perhaps less violent, yeah, but still just as overt and as hurtful. It's still emotional pain because there's a sense of lack of validation, a lack of affirmation, a lack of that I exist, that I am seen or heard, this frustration at, that, at not being seen, not being heard, not being represented, not having access, just getting in job interviews, was difficult. And I came out with high, high flying grades. As as always, black and brown people will attest to this. We are high achievers. We are high, we have high effort coping mechanisms. 
because we have to work twice as hard in order to get half as far. And that refrain is very common. Kamala Harris will talk about how her journey has been to become vice president. You know, she has had an exceptional journey, but for most people, we don't have that route available to us. I hear this often, this refrain, how hard you've worked, not from you, but from other black and brown and indigenous dear friends. And I find it, I get such a pit in my stomach when I hear this, because I now see at 50 years old that I saw my colleagues in high school and even in elementary school, black and brown kids working as hard as we, white kids, white passing kids, and never getting called on yeah. and never being seen in the same way. My One of my lasting memories from school is the lack of expectation, aspiration that the teachers had for me. Mm, wow. And you have to dig deep in order to continue believing in your capacity to learn, capacity to do well. The belief that my parents had in me, an absolute belief that I could do and achieve whatever I set my mind to, because they could see that they, my name, Kali, you may well recognize is I'm named after Kali Ma, the goddess Kali, of course. Um, the fierce warrior deity, the goddess of creation, dissolution, destruction, and from the destruction uprises new life, uprises new opportunities. So in that moment of destruction is the seed of creation. And, and she's a great social justice activist of her time. Her mythology is about the power that she has to affect transformative change. And so in naming me, my parents already set me on a destiny, on a path that I was bidden and called to. My dharma, my, uh, my life's purpose, was already predestined by my parents naming me and by the place from which I was birthed, the conditions from which I was birthed. Hmm. So it took me, but it's taken me, I, we all, I always had, my, my parents would share stories, uh, myths, stories of the gurus, of the gods and goddesses. That's what we grew up with, celebrating festivals, living an Ayurvedic lifestyle. My parents would rise at dawn and pray and chant. And my father in particular would do movement. We didn't call it yoga. We just, it was just part of life. It's like you get up and you just start your day in that way mm. with all of the ethics and principles that I practice as a yoga teacher as a yogic who lives life in a very yogic way and I practiced yoga and I never realized that what I was practicing had great value and commodity in the west I was practicing right. at home with my right. mum in the temple it was all very private it was this was a family practice this was just the way I lived my life the same way you get up and brush your teeth it was the same it was just in my essence to do this and it's only when, Elena, I got a little bit older and I thought I moved to a new place, new city, wanted to make some friends. And I thought, well, I, you know, I'll join the local studio because that's where I'll meet other yogis. They'll have very similar ideals and live in a very similar way to me. We'll have shared values. We'll have common goals. Um, it'll help me create a sense of community, only for me to discover that that's... Uh-oh. That's completely so. different. So <laughs> I awake. Oh, it was just shocking. I was. Where were you? Where? What city? Were in you? London. So I I moved to London. So I lived in the Midlands, and I moved to London. So big city, London, and clearly uh, yoga in London is a very highly marketable industry, which generates profit at extraordinary levels before pandemic, and. I arrived in a class and immediately I, I didn't feel as if I had a warm welcome. I sat at the back of the class. I kind of sensed that the teacher suddenly felt quite uncomfortable because everybody in the class was white and I was the only person of colour in the class. Oh my gosh. And 
you didn't ask me to introduce How is that myself. true in London? I don't find that to be so in London. When I teach there, I find a lot more diversity. It's very. It's changed a lot from when I was practicing when I was going to studios, but they are pockets okay. of London because I, I would imagine that you know, when you come, you're coming to central London. That's true. So London is a big metropolis. And so some of the studios that you would be teaching at would be the high profile studios. And even there, there would be, it wouldn't represent the population of London. So when you look at the demographics within a yoga mm-hmm. studio and the demographics of London, it's not representative. You might have. Uh, yes, understood. I said it's changing over the last year, but it's taken a long time coming. So it's only, you feel it's only changed over the last year because of the global awareness of racism that has risen up since Mr. Floyd's murder. That's right. I think the Black Lives Matters movement has ignited a conversation in many countries around the world, in many communities. It's, it's had far-reaching impact on the world and the distress and the trauma that has been witnessed around the world of the experience that black and brown people in the US have. Countries before were able to say, well, we're, things aren't as bad here. And what that conversation really started off was beginning to look at systemic racism and how these systems operate are modelled on white supremacy based on a corporate model of capitalism and how those two come together to exclude and marginalise people who don't have value. Right. This is an ongoing conversation that I've had with several of my guests over the last several months, say 10, 9, 10 months. I deeply... uh, understand the ubiquitous nature of the misunderstanding under which most white people and white passing people are held, we don't even realize that, or we haven't in the past realized, the water in which we're swimming so much favors the color of our skin, so much favors our advantages in everywhere from, as we spoke about, school all the way into the job market. And we take that for granted. I know that I did for a very long time. And I'm grateful that you're bringing our awareness to it, particularly in the yoga space. Um, I've also worked with Susanna Varkataki, who wrote an entire book on decolonizing yoga. And so I'm obviously incredibly uncomfortable with it because I've lived in this world for 20 years. I've worked in this world and really had no, but had no understanding, innocent, sort of, in my own mind, but really just completely ignorant is the more accurate phrase. And now coming to understand that this is pervasive and it needs to change. Um, what I would like to talk about with you is two sort of two pronged. One is how do we actually fix this? I have my own fixes now that I'm my own person and I don't work at a studio. I don't own a studio. I make sure that I give scholarships and all kinds of latitude to welcome as many black, brown, indigenous people of color into everything that I do. That's one way. But I would really love to know from you, what are the ways in which you feel white people and white passing people can step in and ameliorate and eventually eliminate this situation once and for all? That's the first part. One of the things that I have really tried to focus on is that in yoga, we very much focus on the individual and the self. And I invite practitioners and teachers and students to move beyond the self. So moving that sort of internal reflection, that critical inquiry of the self in order to understand the self and to understand the impact of forces upon the self. 
often invisible and unseen. As you mentioned, so that this lack of awareness isn't necessarily uh, something to uh, malign people about. If your life has always been in this way, you only know your life and you only know your own journey. And everybody's journey is full of hardship and suffering in many ways. And once you have looked at your own journey from a critical objective point of view, and that's really difficult perspective to take on the self, to become the witness to the self. But once you're able to bear witness to the self, where your thoughts, your, your, these, your clashes, all of those layers of the self that cloud your perception, and you begin to unveil those layers. The Panchamaya Kosha, I often think of all of us as Panchamaya uh, Kosha and, mm. and thinking about how, how all of these systems and thoughts and behaviours, patterns operate, not just individual patterns, but patterns that we have inherited or absorbed by being members of culture, being members of the society we live in. Right. That self-awareness can mean that you can step forward with vulnerability, take responsibility and be accountable for your own individual decisions. And then you are in a place to create and build relationships across points of difference, across the lines of difference. Because once you are able to recognize your own limitations, you are able to recognize your own depths and your limitations, then you are able to know what you can offer others and what you will invite in from others. So you become to your relationships with a sense of honesty, uh, which will be painful and uncomfortable and shameful even, and perhaps loaded with grief. That I feel, that I feel, the loaded with grief that I feel. I've ceased, uh, and, and perhaps it's okay if we differ than this, but I've ceased to shame myself and shame other white people, and I just aim to educate as best I can from what I learn. Yeah, I often I won't take that out of it. Yeah, I, one of the things that I, um, shame is a really interesting um, thing to feel. Um, for me, the things that make me feel, and I know the moments when I feel ashamed, and I can feel that shame burning up inside me when I have not been true to my ethics and principles. And that's a that's sense well of, said. that's a way of me recognising that I'm not aligned with the values that I I expect myself to live up to, but also that are for the greater good, that are a call to my dharmic purpose. And so that shame for me is a moment to open my eyes. It's a point of recognition rather than something that you then obsess with and, and become stagnated within. Shame, right. I think, is a call for action because often we feel shame about something that we deep down know does not align with who we are or who you want to be with, who we want to be. And so the shame, the message, this is an important message for my listener. Do not dwell in shame. If you feel ashamed about being misaligned, if you feel ashamed about some behavior that you used to do or something that you're still doing right now, that's a call to action. It's not a call for you to sit and dwell in pity for yourself. It's a call to change. Yeah. Because that, that self-destructive, that negative cycle will not enable either the self or the collective to be liberated. And so if our the goal of yoga is for liberation, and I there's no doubt in my mind that that is the calling, we gain liberation through conscious awareness and we gain liberation by uniting, becoming a union with the self, with the other, with the universe. If that is the path of yoga, then staying within the self and within this small self where you beat yourself up will prevent you from moving and growing and expanding and opening your heart and opening your mind. So we want to move beyond that. And we move beyond that by forming relationship with those who can either support us, guide us, educate us, enlighten us. Right. And again, a reminder to the white people, white passing people, it's not Kali's responsibility to educate us or me, but 
it's my responsibility to seek out her expertise and her understanding and her experience, her life experience, thereby creating a, an understanding of my own. You build this by using your yoga sadhana to build your own inner power and strength and resilience. And that is that resilience applies to everybody, no matter which body you show up in, no matter which skin you wear on the outside. This inner power, strength and resilience, we all have access to it. And it is how do we use that and for what purpose do we use that? So do we use it to honor source cultures, the source of wisdom teaching? Do we use it to connect with the heart and the roots of the practice by being a guardian of a sacred gift, by showing respect and humility to those whose ancestors have suffered to create these wisdom traditions, who have suffered to protect and pass on these wisdom traditions? The number of people who were killed in India because they were designated as agitators or as thugs or as criminals because they lived the faith that they practiced by standing up and resisting the British rule. They, yeah. they made a sacrifice. That's and we have right. to recognize the sacrifice that ancestors of all wisdom traditions have made for us to have that gift today. Yeah. To honor our ancestors, honor our own heritage ancestors, whether known or unknown, to seek out what is the wisdom of my land? What is the wisdom of my people? How does the wisdom of my land and my people connect me to the wisdom of lands and people from other places? What, the, what is the commonality of our wisdom traditions? What is the healing nature of our wisdom traditions? That's such a, that's such a huge deal, you know, to... Gosh, if we take one thing, my listener, from this, it's that so many people who are committed to the practices that you and I take for granted today died and suffered and were persecuted in order to further the practice along. Yeah. That's the moment of grief for all of us. That's the grief I feel. Yeah. Wow. And... And when that happens in the heart space, so this is where the panchamayakosha, when you feel that, because you'll feel it in your physical body, then you'll feel it in your breath body, then you'll feel it in your emotions, and then it will trigger thoughts for us. And this is where the practice of mudra, mantra, and pranayama can guide us through this. This is a cliche that we are experiencing. This is the suffering that we are experiencing. And we, we have to move beyond that suffering. Because if we stay within the suffering, we stay disconnected, dispossessed, disorientated. And for union and liberation to take place, for not only the self, but for all, we have to be able to join with one another in this practice on an equitable footing. Right. Right. I was just thinking it might be useful for you to describe in your understanding the word klesha. Or klesha. Uh, yeah, klesha. So klesha is uh, are often said to be the patterns of behavior that we have learned over different lifetimes. So it might be from a previous lifetime or or from our ancestors. So we inherit the essence is that we carry DNA from our ancestors. We carry the trauma within our bodies. We have this embodied trauma in our DNA, just as we might have the eyes of a great-grandmother or the, the walk of a great-great-grandfather. We have this inherited trauma within our body and it sits deep within the mind and it guides the actions and the decisions that we sometimes make subconsciously or unconsciously in which we repeat these behaviours of suffering of pain and yet we may not understand where it's coming from and so our journey in this life is to begin to understand the roots of our suffering and understand the roots of suffering of others so that we can 
deconstruct, dismantle, unlearn, and relearn to move without causing suffering, without experiencing unnecessary suffering. So, for example, if we turn to alcohol or drugs, or if we are quick to anger and we are unable to contain our anger in a constructive and powerful way, it becomes overly powerful and damaging, then that may be something that's rooted in our ancestral DNA. And if you think back at what, if we think about people around the world, what the experience of people in the Middle East has been, people, the experience of Jewish people, the experience of black people, enslaved Africans, the experience of colonised Indians. We think about the erased Aboriginal peoples of Australia. When we think about the Indigenous people, First Nations people of Canada and the Americas, all of that is going to be inherited trauma. But also for, the, for white-bodied people who are, have heritage and ancestry in Europe, who perhaps were the colonizers and the oppressors, whether active or whether complicit or silent. There is a trauma that you inherit by brutalizing others. So that brutalizing trauma, the ability to, to dehumanize others is also a inherited trauma. And unless we recognize that, whether we are white-bodied, black or brown-bodied, we have all inherited trauma, either as the oppressed or as the oppressor, either as the dominant or as the subordinate. And how do we reshape those relationships in the modern world, in a complex modern world, which is smaller than it used to be, so we have more direct relationships with one another? And it is that silent suffering that takes place. One of my dearest white friends, she was unable to understand my pain that I experienced when I had my first experience of racism in yoga. And when I tried to explain that, she couldn't understand why I was talking about feeling racially abused within yoga. And I thought, well, no, because I have a history of my people being treated like this. You don't have a history of your people being treated like that. And maybe that's why the empathy isn't there for me in this on this occasion. And how can I help you grow your empathy to include me in that vision of who deserves empathy, who deserves understanding, who merits my time for this? Were you able and to it, get through to her? Did we get through the hurt? No. Never. She didn't understand. No, not yet. Wow. Not yet. Not yet. I like that. Not, not yet. yet. I am patient and my heart is open and I am open and if my arms are open, my heart is open, my mind is open to her. But in many ways, when we talk about, you know, um, when you go and talk about drug addiction and you have to have that moment of realization that I am a drug addict, I am an alcoholic. And if that meant I am a racist. I have been born into white supremacy. Some of the decisions I make, I have taken advantage of the benefits of white supremacy. Unless you're able to recognize that, then dismantling, deconstructing and undoing that will take longer than perhaps black and brown people have patience for. I am now at the point where I choose to walk away from people who do not want to acknowledge the reality, the lived reality of racism. I think to my listener, if you're listening and you're white-bodied, thank you for that term, Kali. Say out loud, you've been born into white supremacy. You've, I've been born into white supremacy. I have benefited from systems of white supremacy. And it is time for me to learn more and more about the experience of black and brown and indigenous and aboriginal people, First Nations people, and make that part of my being for the rest of my life. If you can say that, my listener, you are part of a healing. That is a really big deal. Kali, what you've just said. Thank you. And I... Uh... When I work with, because um, I do a lot of work with yoga teachers um, who are decolonizing their practice mm -hmm. and looking at 
critical whiteness and what it means for the for the practice in modern yoga. And they often say to me, is there space for me here now? Do I have a right to be here in this practice? I have that feeling as well. And I say unequivocally and without a doubt in my mind that what we need in the practice is, is yoga teachers who are doing the work and have done the work. We need this self doubt is a sign of emotional intelligence. Doubt is when we do not believe it's it's not rooted in ego or arrogance. Doubt is rooted in deep intelligence. And if you have doubt, then you should be in this space because you are the one that can effect change. You can change. You can create sustainable change. It is better for white yoga teachers to stay in the space because they can create change and be part of the change than to leave. Because if you leave, what happens is people who get left behind are the ones who exploit, monetize and commodify the practice and strip it of its heart and soul. Let's talk about this for one moment. This is important to me because I earn money from teaching yoga. I've been studying for more than 20 years now, and I feel comfortable earning money from teaching yoga because I feel like I have earned that money rightfully. I want to know how exactly to address this with fellow teachers. Do you teach a course? Is there something that we can look at? Is there somewhere where we can go where we can actually compensate you for your understanding and your commitment and thereby create a more equitable and, and really pure exchange? One of the ways that we can build friendships and allyship is to have, and I talked about this equity, to, the, to be equitable partnerships and that this partnership is one of equals with equal access and equal opportunities, but also to recognize that sometimes people will need more support because of how disadvantaged the start was for those people. And there are so many black and brown people doing wonderful work out there, including myself. Um, the work that I do and the effort that I've done go into creating the work that I do, the research that I do, is so that I can offer a tool for practitioners, for teachers, that they can then gift in their relationships with others so that they can change the spaces in which they work. I don't have any desire to go necessarily into white yoga spaces. What I want to do is build relationships with white yoga teachers so that they can do the work. So I would rather work with people who are able to affect change and I'm a change maker in that way. And being a change maker in that way and being a warrior in that way is I can have difficult conversations around race because I'm I'm practiced at it. I I understand the nuance and the non-binary nature of conversations around race and cultural exploitation and appropriation. So what I encourage people to do is to access teachers, particularly of South Asian heritage, who feel uprooted from their land or their ancestors, especially those in the diaspora who are living in white dominant cultures, to be able to come to those conversations with a sense of accountability so that when you arrive with the black and brown teacher, you do take responsibility for your role and and know that you have to go out and be a change maker as well. It's not enough for you to receive these teachings and, and say that now I've done the work. It is, well, what are you doing for other people and how are you changing life for other people? Where What's your dharmic calling? What is the calling to justice for you? It might look different for each of us. Mm. So we'll yeah, all have yeah. a different path to carve. Okay, I got it. It's, it's unfolding and unfurling all the time, but I feel very responsible for ensuring that what I earn and what I create is equitably shared and 
that's just the beginning. I think that's just the yeah. beginning. The question is always, do I have enough for myself and my family? Yes, mm -hmm. I do. Do I need the rest of this? No. Who can I share it with? Yep. Yep. That's been my policy for many years. Yeah. yeah. Quietly, but that's how I roll. Yeah. But, but that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. I think, I think this is an ongoing conversation. Here's my commitment to you. I want to hear about any courses that you're teaching so that I can send the yoga teachers with whom I work in your direction so that they can learn with you and support your work and begin this very slow, generations-long process of reparations for the suffering that your parents endured on both sides of the of of the of their lives really yeah on the, of the partition and i want to recap this for my listener because i feel like t i've taken notes here and I, I feel like there's there are several important concepts one is that we really are building relationships across points of difference and this is our responsibility if we are in this space at this time, listening to these words, we're building relationships across points of difference, and this is an honor that we have to fix what's been done before. We are acknowledging the patterns of trauma we've inherited. We are tasked to remember the practice as a way to respect and honor those who've come before, those who've suffered so that the practice could endure. We are reshaping extremely imbalanced relations in a very, a very modern, complex world. And if we have doubts about our capacity to do so, know that your doubt is rooted in deep intelligence. These are all Kali's words. And that intelligence is the way to create sustainable change. I think this is one of the most important interviews I've ever had, actually. I want to thank you. And I want I now want you to tell us about the courses that you teach, because I know there are some. And whether the timing is off or not, I want people to know exactly where to go looking for you right now, the spelling of your name, your website, the courses that you offer, the frequency with which you offer them, so that we can all follow you and find you easily thank you um so the, you can find me at rebel yoga tribe .co.uk my website um, i have a youtube channel and i welcome people to like and subscribe because it supports my community work in particular makes yoga accessible for those who can't or don't want to go into yoga studios and that is rebel yoga tribe um, you can Google that. And I have courses coming up, like decolonizing yoga courses. So I have two parts. Decolonizing yoga is really looking at identity politics. It's looking at critical race and critical whiteness. It's looking at the legacy of colonialism in modern yoga. And it's looking at cultural appropriation and cultural restitution. And then I have a part two, which looks at decolonizing philosophy and Ayurveda, particularly looking at how the call for action is embedded within yogic philosophy. The, call, the ability to have both self and collective care is within the traditions itself. And for sacred activists and social justice warriors, being able to have time to have self-care is fundamental. So there's two parts of these courses that I offer and I encourage, I mean, they are completely holistic and full and um, rich in resource and rich in conversation. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so just I'm on social media, Kali Rebel Yoga Tribe, and you can find everything there. And I do lots of um, I post sometimes about yoga, but most of the time I post about the injustices that we see around the world so that as yogis, we can understand that our responsibility to reducing suffering goes beyond our mat and it goes into the world. Mm. And sometimes we can change things for people on the other side of the ocean. Being, this is tangential, but not 
so my mother gave me this name, E-L-E-N-A. She said it, Elena. Many people in many other countries say it, Elena, Elena, Elen, all the things. I love them all. May I please learn your preferred pronunciation of your first name? Because I started with Kali, then I migrated toward Kali. But I want to know how you pronounce it in your life right now. Uh, mostly everybody calls me Kali. Um, yeah, and I'm very happy. It's better than Kylie. <laughs> That's for sure. And <laughs> No offense to any Kylies out there. No, no, no offense meant. And your parents, do they call you Kali or Kali? They call me Guljeet, which means uh, the victor oh. over hmm. destruction. So Kal is from Kalima, Kal, mm. Kal Yog, mm. and then Jeet is victory. So yes. um, I was yes. I, I was born to do this work. Indeed, you were a friend, <laughs> and I want to thank you from my heart for uh, helping me and my listener to understand more about the task at hand. And I appreciate you and your work very, very much. I have a tear in my eye. Thank you. Oh, thank you for being here. Thank you, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.